So here's my talk in a nutshell. I believe our culture has absolutely gone off the rails when it comes to what it means to live as man and woman. And they've done this because of an underlying godless philosophy. The confusion, the corruption about manhood and womanhood in our society is the fruit of an unbiblical ideology. It's an ideology that will lead people straight to hell. And if that's true, then the church must not shrink back from what God has said about these things. But rather, we must exalt God's design of male and female. This is a time where some people would say, well, well, the battle's over here on the issue about, about simply God's created order, male and female, what does that mean? And we will shrink back to say, well, let's just focus on what it means in the church. Let's just focus on what it means in the home. Because if we do that, the world's not going to be too upset with us. But the problem is God has told us to be faithful witnesses in the world to God's truth, to God's design, to God's gospel. Well, how bad are things? There's presently a national commission touring our land to determine whether it's viable to draft women into the military. This commission will report to Congress next year. Dr. Mark Coppinger, professor of Christian philosophy and ethics at Southern Seminary just down the road, who has been with us here and is with us now at this conference, recently spoke against this proposal in Washington, D.C., And as I watched him bring light to our nation's confusion, I sat there watching this panel asking myself, how do you get to the point where you're honestly considering drafting women, wives, mothers, daughters, sisters, granddaughters into the military? That is, having what the Apostle Peter calls the weaker vessel, What the Apostle Paul calls the glory of man. What we all know of as the fairer sex, compulsorily strapped with grenades and knives to go fight other men, our enemies. How do you get to the point where men would advocate women being civilly forced in front of them to the front lines? Women who King Solomon called Noble daughters with rounded thighs like jewels and bellies like heaps of wheat encircled with lilies. Women with breasts that produce milk to nurture babies. Women with wombs that give life. What kind of godless, abusive, oppressive, God-forsaken, cowardly ideology has resulted in this situation? And that word ideology is very important because this is a political situation and politics is downstream from culture and worldview. So really, it's an important question. What's going on? Well, that ideology outright rejects Genesis 1.1, which says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The text is plain. There is a God and we are not him. He, therefore, determines what is. He determines the nature of reality. Notice, Genesis 1-1, he created the heavens and the earth. 
The heavens are the heavens, the earth is the earth. The heavens could not become the earth even if they tried. God, not his creation, determines the nature of reality. But the truth goes on. Because God is God and we are not, God determines not only what is, but he determines the purpose of what is. The heavens have a purpose. God has given it to the heavens. The heavens is to be the keeper of the sun, moon, stars, and clouds. The earth is to yield fruit and give man and beast a place to roam. The earth can complain that it would like the purpose of star keeping, but it cannot change the purpose for which it has been made. But the truth goes on. God not only determines what is and the purpose of what is, but he has determined the beauty of what is. He created with wisdom, simplicity and complexity, symmetry and asymmetry. He created one creation distinct from himself, but he immediately went to creating distinction within that creation. A distinction that sings glorious harmony. The heavens and earth might complain together that the world would be better if there were two heavens and no earth, or two earths and no heavens. But you know what? They'd be wrong. The worldview, then, that increases around us, rejects these things, inverts these things. It is rightly identified as a pagan ideology. And I don't just mean a nasty one by that. Peter Jones has done great work on this and identifying paganism. Ross Douthat, he's a Catholic, contributor to the New York Times, has recently talked about the rise of neo-paganism in America. What I'm talking about when I say a pagan ideology is one that claims man is God. It's not merely secular. It's not indifferent toward religion. It's not indifferent toward some kind of ultimate deity. It's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1. They turn to worship the creature rather than the creator. They did not stop at atheism. Man being God, he can determine what is. He can determine the purpose of what is. He can determine the beauty of what is. Now, if you don't really think this is a problem, consider some of our most common phrases. Cinderella has been telling us for quite some time now, no matter how long you've been grieving, if you keep on believing, the dream that you wish will come true. You will determine the truth. When it comes to purpose, purpose, what are you for? We've been raising up children. Generation after generation, telling them what? You can be whatever you want to be when you grow up. I've got to tell you, if you want to be a pink chimpanzee living on Jupiter, you're not going to be able to be that. uh, Just last night, I was up in my room eating a dove chocolate, and I unwrapped the dove chocolate, and you know they have the little quotes on the inside. Guess what it said? You can do anything, but you can't do everything. No, you can't do anything. You can't do it. It's just a lie. It's coming at you everywhere. It comes at you in Disney movies. It comes at you in Dove chocolates. Think about this with Disney princesses. I know I have a problem with Disney princesses. People complain that I kick them in the kneecaps too often. I'm all for watching Disney movies. Just make sure that you disciple those princesses in the truth and your own little children who are watching. Brave. Here's a young woman who's limited by some goofy father. She wants to go off and pursue whatever, and he stands in the way. 
The Little Mermaid. What do we have? A little girl who wants to go and be whatever she wants to be when she grows up. She wants to go to the land, but some crazy father stands in the way. Moana, what do we have? A woman trapped on an island who wants to go to the sea. Contra Little Mermaid with a father standing in the way. You define your purpose. On the beauty front, what do we say? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Which is another way of saying it's beautiful because I say it is. This unbiblical worldview, subjective worldview, pagan worldview is expressing itself in our relationships as male and female. We want to redefine the nature of manhood and womanhood. We want a personally crafted purpose unlimited by our sex. We want to blend the sexes and claim the ambiguity of androgyny as a superior beauty to what God has created. Such a worldview where man sits in God's chair, determining truth, goodness, and beauty can only lead to despair. Now many Christians say, what's the big deal here with manhood and womanhood? They take a narrow approach to the subject, saying simply that women should not be elders in the church, and that the husband is the head of his wife in the home. But such a narrow approach is insufficient. It's not addressing the totality of what God has revealed to us concerning this subject in Scripture. And it's doing it right at the point where our culture is trying to twist the very fabric of reality. And it's going to snap back at them. It's going to destroy them. And we are to go out and speak the truth about these things. God's Word has something to say. Take a Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. I'm going to join Charles Spurgeon and Dr. Nettles, if you were here last yesterday, and not do an exposition of this passage, but it does serve as a foundation for this message. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So my claim is that we should live out winsomely, boldly exalt God's design of man and woman in the world. So what are we really talking about? Well, we see God's design indicated even in Genesis chapter 1 in this passage. The first thing that jumps out is, of course, that both male and female are created in the image of God. There have been those who have tried to, tried to 
confine the image of God to the very relationship, the social relationship of male and female. Now, that's a bad deal because then if you only have one woman or one man, you don't have the image of God. That's contrary to Scripture. If you have one man left on the planet, you have the image of God. If you have one woman left on the planet, you have the image of God. That means that man and woman are then equal in dignity, value, essence, and human nature. But along with this sameness, we see ordained difference. Like the heavens and earth, sun and moon, sea and land, there is male and female. Now, if man and woman do not acknowledge their complementary nature, then they will not be able to be fruitful and multiply. Right here in Genesis 1, you can't be fruitful and multiply without acknowledging God's design. You won't be able to fill the earth. You won't be able to subdue it. You won't be able to exercise dominion. But as we go through scripture, we see more and more of this design spelled out. Kevin DeYoung has recently done an excellent talk on the beauty of broad complementarianism. I commend it to you. And he works through a paradigm of of five distinctions, five things we see in male and female. I want to take three of those just to set the created order, the created design before us. A first design feature is this. Scripture emphasizes man's strength. And woman's beauty. We see this in 1 Peter 3. There, the woman is spoken of as the weaker vessel. That implies man's strength. And then Peter goes on and says that women are to adorn themselves with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. These things are very plain. If, we're, if we have our eyes open in the world, these things are very plain. If you look at my wedding day picture, you're going to look at the lady in white and say, wow, she's beautiful. And you're going to look at the guy standing next to her and say, who is this lucky chump? (laughs) He must be rich. rich. That's right. And this doesn't mean that women aren't strong and that men cannot be beautiful. We, we, we know these things. It's not, they're not watertight categories, but they are emphases in Scripture. And we have all of this talk today about women being an independent woman. And she's a wrecking ball. And she's a tiger. And she's a lion. And she's roaring. And she's doing all these things. Like, no, you're not. You're not a wrecking ball. You're just not a wrecking ball. It doesn't mean that women aren't strong. My wife has carried six human beings in her womb and given birth to them. And now she raises them and teaches them. Surely that requires strength. But it's, there's, there's distinction and there's difference here. It's not the kind of strength that the world's talking about. When they're going around talking about people roaring like a lion. Man's strength. Woman's beauty. One more point on this. Fascinating. In the panel discussion in D.C., where Dr. Coppinger was, there was a woman who was who who's in the Marines, and she she's against women in combat roles. So she's not in combat roles, and she's simply identifying all of the statistics that that integrated platoons consistently perform lower than those who are not, and that all the data clearly shows that that women suffer more injury and it takes them longer to recover. And she's doing all this very plainly. A woman, surely a strong woman who's testifying. And one of the ladies on the panel said, now some people might think that you're saying that women are not as strong as men. What would you say to that? 
And the poor gal, it's just like, what world are we living in? Somebody has to say, the, we are, the, the world's just dying for somebody to say, the emperor has no clothes on this. There is something so, so distorted at the bottom of this that Christians have an opportunity to expose and then bring the light, the truth, the gospel to it. A second design feature, male strength, female beauty. A second design feature is exhorting fathers and nursing mothers. This is the Apostle Paul's language in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul speaks of exhorting fathers and nursing mothers. Now again, they're not watertight categories because the Apostle Paul is actually saying, I was with you like a nursing mother. So men, men can take on this kind of feature. Women can take on that kind of feature. The fact remains, though, you expect to see mom putting a Band-Aid on little Johnny, and you expect to see dad telling him to go try that backflip off the top of the playground one more time. Because, son, you almost had it. Right there. This is just... This is the world in which we live. This is God's revealed truth. A third design feature. In Genesis chapter 2, we see the pattern of man as leader and woman as helper. Adam is created first and then Eve. Adam is made out of the ground and Eve is formed from the body of Adam as a helper fit for him. Adam is given work to do and Eve is to aid him in it. And Adam names the animals and woman. No, this does not mean that you teach your daughters to submit to men in general. That's a great way to get them abused by wicked, godless men. And neither does it mean that a woman should never lead or that a man should never help. It's not how we run our home. My wife doesn't go, oh dear, will you open the refrigerator because that's an act of initiation so I can grab the food out. It's just silly. We're just talking about a pattern that we see in the world. These things God has revealed to us. This means that it wasn't some great misogynistic enterprise that Jesus chose 12 men to be the first 12 apostles. And there's not some great conspiracy at work in our nation that in the history of our land, men have served as the president of the United States. God has established certain principles in the world. Now, this is not an exhaustive analysis of God's created order, but it gives us enough of a foundation to see where the battle lines are drawn. The church is left with the decision to either teach what God's word says about these things or remain silent. Our own Southern Baptist Convention stands at a crossroads. I really believe that. We will either be conformed to the pattern of this world concerning male and female, or we will be transformed by scripture to testify the truth about God's design. There's been much talk about empowering Southern Baptist women to the highest levels of leadership in the church. And, and how does that map on to what we just saw in Scripture? It's fascinating. Male strength, female beauty. But what, what do you, you don't hear talk about beautifying women. You hear talk about empowering women. And again, I'm not, this is so delicate because I'm not against empowering women. It's great. They're going to need to be strong in ways. I've already identified that. But where's the emphasis? What kind of thing are we really talking about? Heard someone say, don't say that you're about empowering women unless you have women at the highest levels of leadership in your church. Save the eldership. We're still willing to hold on to that. Or the, the language that we're talking about right now where we just heard, uh, well, a, a woman can do everything that an unordained man can do in the church. Well, you're not, it's not, you're not in step with what God has revealed when you're talking like that. Key Southern Baptist leaders have recently advocated women preaching 
in churches on the Lord's Day. This is a very, very big deal. I mean no um, offense to him here, and I'm not saying that he, he, I'm not saying he has a pagan ideology, I'm not saying any of that thing, those things, but the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer, has recently articulated a position very clearly online, dealing with 1 Timothy 2, that says that women can preach on the Lord's Day to the gathered congregation from the pulpit in the sermon time, simply not in an elder-like way. And I don't mean offense to him. I don't mean at all that. But I've asked leading church history theologians, when's the last time a president of the Southern Baptist Convention publicly advocated the position of women preaching on the Lord's Day to the gathered congregation? And the response was, I don't know that any Southern Baptist president has ever done that. Maybe. I don't know. David Wells is helpful here. He is warned about what happens when pastors become professionalized and borrow the world's principles. He writes, rough truth gives way to smooth practice. The jerks and moments of discovery when God's world illumines our own gives way to moments in which our world brings his into tame submission. When it comes to God's created order of male and female, the question is, Will God's world illumine our own, or will ours bring his into tame submission? The battle lines are drawn at truth, goodness, and beauty. Let's consider each one. First, the battle line of truth. Christians contend that God's created order is true. Now, I'm a full believer in the sovereignty of God. I know that God's truth is going to triumph through this world, and there is nothing that anyone can do about it. There is no way to stop it. God made them male and female, and there is no getting around it. You do not break, your, you do not break God's created order. You break yourself against God's created order. These things are true. And this is also true. If our generation would know God's truth, then Christians must live in accordance with it. We are truth representatives. We are to shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Indeed, Titus 2 says that women are to conduct themselves in certain ways, and as they do, the word of God is not reviled. Did you see that? The the biblical woman living as a biblical woman guards God's word. The text goes on and says that as she does so, she adorns the doctrine of God. That is, as, as women embrace and live out all that God has designed for them to be, they, they beautify God's truth for a lost and dying world. We see that beauty theme shining through again and again. Men have the same responsibility of representing the truth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that man is the image and glory of God. That is, he is to radiate out to the world the truth about God. 1 Timothy tells us that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is our duty. And and, and amen to clear, truthful confessions. But we're not only a pillar and buttress of truth by having clear, tight confessions. We embody that truth in the world. Our culture's position is that God's created order is not true. The feminist movement sought a cultural revolution in which hierarchy was torn down and order done away with. 
The feminist movement claimed a mission of tearing down the patriarchy, but what it truly wanted to tear down is the chief patriarch, God. Radical feminism desires a world that is entirely flat with no truth coming down to us from above. And as a result of this movement, we now have a terrible time with equality. The question of the day is, by what standard? Having torn down God's standard, we are left floundering about trying to find one. And it's sad, it's even a bit humorous, that those who sought to tear down man have now set up man as their standard. The feminist says, I want you to treat me like an equal. And what's meant is, I want you to treat me with the same treatment you receive. I want you to treat me exactly like you. I want you to treat me like a man. They would object to this. But remember, there is no objective standard in this worldview. But a man is not the standard for just treatment of a woman. And a woman is not the standard for just treatment of a man. But a human standard is the only thing that you're left with in a humanistic religion. They have human truth rather than God's truth. And the result is women being treated exactly like men, which leads to abuse. The result is women being drafted into the military. Men competing in women's sports and taking all of their medals. Violent men being sent to women's prisons. Men winning women's beauty pageants, which just happened in Spain. When you neglect God's truth, the consequences are disastrous. Dr. Coppinger demonstrated just how badly our society is rejecting the truth when he spoke in Washington. He pointed out that drafting women into the military is something that goes against nature. It was brilliant. He didn't, he didn't have to, maybe he went to the word, but he was just making a point from God's general revelation, what we see in nature. He demonstrated that this is not merely a Protestant concern, but all sorts of peoples and nations and religions have observed something in nature that we presently seem to be missing. He testified, quote, women have not been drafted in majority Catholic countries like Italy and Ireland, in majority Orthodox countries like Greece and Romania, in majority Muslim countries like Saudi Arabia, Turkey and Indonesia, in majority Buddhist countries like Cambodia and Thailand, in majority Hindu countries like India and Nepal. He added that even in aggressively secular France, whose 18th century revolutionaries were marinated in the atheistic perspectives of Rousseau, Sartre, Derrida, and Foucault, even they did not draft women. We are dealing with a serious inversion of God's created order. This inversion of nature is not only a problem out there, but it is a way of thinking that takes captive even those within the church. This is the hollow and deceptive philosophy that we've been talking about that we find in Colossians. Doug Wilson has pointed out this danger. He said, quote, imagine a place which had heaven and earth muddled, sea and dry land reversed, sun and moon backwards, and the female in combat and the male in drag, but where everybody was solid on justification by faith alone. Can't imagine that? Neither can I. I think this is why many of our faithful, wise, godly brothers and sisters are not quite with us in this fight yet because this is subtle. This is subtle. And as long as it's looked at as merely a political deal and all of this justice stuff, we have to show that the things that are going on are rooted and grounded in a philosophy that will lead people to hell. A philosophy antithetical to the Christian faith. 
It's against this backdrop, this cultural landscape, that Christians declare the truth of God's created order. The standard for just treatment of a man is God's word. The standard for just treatment of a woman is God's word. In certain ways, God's word tells us to treat men and women the same if we would treat them justly. And in certain ways, in many certain ways, God's word says we must treat them differently if we would treat them justly. The second battle line is goodness. Truth, goodness. God's created order is good. And it's good in the sense that he, what he has made suits his purpose. I'm using the word goodness uh, in the sense of a thing's suitability to a particular end. That's what makes a thing good. So a hammer is good for driving in nails, and a screwdriver is good for twisting in screws. But a screwdriver is not good for driving in nails, and a hammer is not good for twisting in screws. God created the world for the purpose of glorifying himself. He created male and female to complement each other to that end. Now, this includes a whole host of things, not the least of which is coming together in sexual union and marriage to be fruitful and multiply. And if posterity would glorify God, then we're going to need nurturing mothers and exhorting fathers. We need the leadership that men by nature bring and the marvelous help that women by nature provide. Have you noticed there's all sorts of talk about purpose today? Your purpose, your meaning. But the key is to see that our purpose is from God. And this is where the objection comes in. Because we're fine with having a job assignment. We're just not fine with someone else giving us a job assignment. Especially God. Because as long as we're alive, we can't tell him, I quit. And the rich part of this, the rich part of this is God didn't ask any of us. Like, Do you want to be a man? You may remember waiting in line before being born. You know, you want to be a man or a woman? We really care about your choice. No, he doesn't. He, he, he gave us our purpose. There's, not, there's more, though. It's not only that our purpose is from God, but our purpose is defined. He defines manhood, what it is to do, what's it to accomplish. He defines womanhood, what is it to do, how it works, how it is accomplished. Now, we ought not to, to restrict the purpose of manhood more narrowly than Scripture does, and we ought not to restrict the purpose of womanhood more narrowly than the Scripture does. But I find John Piper's definitions here very instructive. He says, the essence of biblical manhood is the benevolent responsibility to lead Provide for and protect women in ways that are appropriate to a man's differing relationships. What does that mean? Well, it means if a man claims that my manhood runs away when a woman's in danger, he's lying. That's not the purpose of manhood. Piper says, the essence of biblical womanhood is the freeing disposition to nurture, affirm, and receive strength and leadership from worthy men in ways that are appropriate to her differing relationships. We immediately see the purpose of womanhood. So, so if you find a woman who's nurturing some scoundrel to go do wicked things in the world, that's not womanhood. This is key here because abuse is a serious problem. As we've seen, it's something that has touched upon the Southern Baptist Convention. Why is that happening? You know why it's happening? Because men are not being godly men. And because we have neglected to teach what it means to be a godly man. And we think, oh, I'm afraid to teach about 
manhood, because if I do, the result might be abuse. And what we need to discover, it's because we have not taught biblical manhood that we have the problem that we do. We have not taught biblical womanhood, and therefore we have the problems that we have. This is important because, again, this is a dangerous ideology. It's not merely something out there. It's something that comes in upon us, and we, we can put a Christian veneer on it. Think about how many times you've heard, you've heard someone, maybe a Christian teacher or pastor, say, you have a purpose. God has given you purpose. But that's not far enough. It, it sounds really good. But with this, with this pagan worldview, people are hearing that, and they're going, oh, great. Okay, God has given me a purpose. Uh, my very own journey, my voyage into the great unknown with no limits. God wants me to be whatever I want to be when I grow up. That's not what God has revealed. God made the sea to hold the fish, the sun to shine, the rain to water the earth, the man to glorify him by sacrificing himself to do good, leading, providing, and protecting. And he made the woman to rejoice in the freeing disposition of affirming, receiving, nurturing, and helping. We really do need to think about this point of purpose and see how, how badly we're infected with it. One example. There's a Woman of the Year award and a biological man won it. Well, what's going on there? What, what's the purpose of the Woman of the Year award? It's to affirm and rejoice in the greatest woman of the year. That's the purpose of the woman of the year. By definition, a man cannot fulfill that purpose. But our world is so set on saying, you have your own individual purpose, personally crafted by you, that we're willing to say that a man can be the woman of the year. I don't point these things out to be crude or mean-spirited. I point them out because this is the world that we are living in, and there is a reason things are the way they are. Christians then stand for Christ as they say, I'm a man because God made me a man and he has told me what to do as a man. And I have failed many times at that. But Christ has died for me. And by God's grace in Christ, he will so work in me that I will grow up and become the godly man that he has called me to be. Fulfill the purpose for which he has made me. The third battle line is beauty. God's created order is beautiful. God being God, he not only makes beautiful things, but he determines what is and is not beautiful. When he made man male and female, he saw what he made and he said, it is very good. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 to think upon that which is lovely. And the psalmist tells us to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And an exploration into God's design of man and woman is just that. We discover beauty upon beauty and that results in us worshiping the Lord in the beauty of holiness. There's reasons that we don't, we don't have words to express what arises in us when we consider that God made Adam out of the dust and formed Eve from the rib of Adam. This lovely creature. Adam says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. There is a sameness. Bone and bone, flesh and flesh. Yet, there are two sets of bones and flesh, which imply distinction. And added to this beauty, Eve is bone of Adam's bone. An extension of him, not the other way around. 
And yet God adds to this symphony saying that in marriage the two shall become one flesh. We just stand back and say, who, who, do you think that we would have done it that way? No. His design is glorious. Or what are we to make of the wonder when Paul says, Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. And we're going to look at that text and not not enjoy the beauty of God's design because we're worried about who's going to get the last potato chip in the bag. I mean, am I going to get the short end of the stick in this deal? This is beautiful. It's like listening to Bach and saying, well, as a bassist, I really wish he would have carried that bass note a little bit more. As a soprano, I think he should have went across the top of the treble clef a little bit. This is God's beautiful design, and and we're ruining it. We don't have the taste for it. We're not enjoying the glory that God has revealed. Who cannot look at man and say with the apostle, this is the glory of God? And who cannot look at woman and say, this is the glory of man? This is the apostle. And for those who are uncomfortable with his language, there is nothing lesser about being the glory of glory for women. Woman is the crown of the crown, the radiance of the radiance of God. But the world wants none of this harmony and color contrast. The ideology among us rejects the balance and the subtlety and the craftsmanship of God. It has lost all appreciation for standards of excellence. It would drain men of valor and fortitude. It would remove from women sensitivity and compassion. In general, there appears to be a hardening of woman and a softening of man. The worldview prevalent among us claims subjective standards for beauty. And strangely enough, with everyone wanting to create their own personal standards, there has been been a move toward androgyny. Back home in Florida, my wife and I were out on a date, and we were downtown, and we walked into one of the stores, and there was a stairwell, and it said at the top there would be art. And so I said, okay. So we wandered up there. And as we got there, there there was a spot... And there were toys just scattered all over the ground and orange road cones set around it and a sign that had the artist's name. I said, I got all kinds of art in my kids' rooms. I will sell it. I will sell it. There was no order, no form, no symmetry, no asymmetry, no design, just chaos. And that's a sign of our times when it comes to how the world's thinking about male and female. It's right at this point that Christians have a great opportunity. Things have gotten so ugly out there that people really are yearning for beauty. The world is hungry for male influence and initiative that is not domineering or self-serving. The world is thirsty for female loveliness that is not glamorous or gaudy. This is a time for us to live according to God's created order, displaying just how beautiful it is. Understand, I understand The world's not going to like this. The world will not like the testimony of the truth displayed before them. But this is our duty. 
Here's the whole of it. Our culture has gone off the rails on what it means to be men and women. And they've done so because of a godless ideology that will lead people straight to hell. So let our message be, and as we declare it, let it be crystal clear. There is a God and we are not him. He created the world. He created man in his own image, male and female. He created them. He determines what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. And let us from this biblical vision proclaim his gospel. His gospel that says, we created beings have fallen short of his truth, his goodness, his beauty many times. What man here can look at the standard of biblical manhood and say, I've kept it? None of us. What woman here can look at the standard of biblical womanhood and say, I've obeyed every part of it? None of us. It's just this point that God's word tells us. He didn't leave us in our sin and our shortcomings, but sent his very son, truth himself, goodness himself, beauty himself, to live, die, and rise again. Amen. Those who trust him, those who trust him will be saved from all of our sinful perversions and manipulations of his design. We'll be forgiven and washed of all of our sin. And then by his grace, we will be molded. We will be shaped into God's glorious design. Church, do not back down from this fight. There's great things at stake here. God's truth is at stake here. Souls are at stake here. May we exalt winsomely and boldly the beauty of God's design. Let's pray. Father God, we worship you for you are God and we are not. You are high and exalted. You are holy. You are altogether different than us. If you needed help, you wouldn't ask us. We submit ourselves to you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would be faithful in exalting him in this lost and dying world. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.